from Asia Society Switzerland. This is State of Asia, a podcast on the world's most dynamic region. I'm your host, Nico Lossinger. Today, I'm speaking with Agatha Kratz, head of EU-China research at the Rhodium Group in Paris. As a person, as a China expert, and as someone who's passionate about China, I just miss being on the ground. She tells us why the reasons for China's economic slowdown go much deeper than just zero COVID lockdowns. Of course, COVID had an effect this year, but China's growth is going to come down for a long time because the rebalancing in the economy it will take years to clear up. And she explains what's weird about the planned visit of the German Chancellor to China. China is just not opening up, if not closing down, to foreign business that it's more and more favoring its own domestic players. The context is getting more and more difficult for European companies. And so to go there as if it were 2008 is looking a little bit weird. Welcome to the State of Asia. Agatha Kratz works for Rhodium, an independent research provider, where she heads the China corporate advisory team, as well as Rhodium's research on European Union-China relations and China's economic statecraft. Agatha is also a non-resident adjunct fellow of the Reconnecting Asia project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. She holds a PhD from King's College London on China's railway diplomacy, still the coolest PhD topic I've ever seen. Her previous positions include Associate Policy Fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations and Editor-in-Chief of its quarterly journal China Analysis, Assistant Editor for Culture Economics China Economic Quarterly, and Junior Fellow at the Asia Center in Paris. Agatha, thank you very much for being here. Thanks for having me, Nico. Agatha, we are speaking, of course, just a few days after China's 20th Party Congress concluded. By now, the fog, to the extent that it can be lifted, has mostly lifted. Uh, Xi Jinping, of course, is consolidating his power, but the economy is also slowing down considerably. What, if anything, watching the 20th Party Congress has surprised you about the outcomes? It's, it's a very good question because I think nothing happened that we didn't expect to happen. Yet, on Sunday morning, when I woke up to the news of the Politburo Standing Committee lineup, I was still very much surprised by how much of a uh, circle of loyalists um, Xi Jinping is surrounding himself with, with this new leadership lineup. The seven people lineup was a stark recognition of China's current trajectory, uh, much less collegial, much less reformist, in some ways much less interoperable with our economies, with our political systems, with our uh, own trajectory here in Europe and in advanced market economies more broadly. The party congress is not a place for policy announcements. So we weren't expecting much there, but we had known for a while and we knew prior to the Congress that the zero COVID policy, for example, uh, was not going to be abandoned overnight. And this is pretty much what we're seeing emerge, uh, you know, our, our slight hopes uh, for a return to uh, market principles or stronger market principles was left aside, unfortunately, just cementing this idea that China's on a diverging path at the moment. So there's a lot we knew, but despite all of that, I was still surprised on Sunday morning. You already mentioned that the party congress 
is not a place for policy announcement. And something that struck me when looking at the coverage of this Congress in mostly Western media, European media over the last few weeks is that it was kind of breathless. And this party Congress was covered almost the way, you know, one would cover US presidential elections. And I feel that, of course, you're watching Congress, this Congress very closely, you follow it. But for an observer who's not very deep into Chinese politics, are we maybe even overestimating the significance in terms of sort of setting an overall direction for China and for Chinese politics, is that party Congress really the watershed moment that it's been reported on? Or is it more sort of a bureaucratic proceeding whose results have, have been agreed a long time ago? The, the way we've been formulating it is that it is such an exceptional party congress that nothing exceptional could come out of it. And so let me unpack that a little bit. Um, it is exceptional because it is a clear deviation from you know the past few decades of leadership making in China. Uh, the fact that Xi would go for a third term uh, is a clear break away from just historical kind of best practices uh, of the past decades. And so it is exceptional, exceptional for that matter. It is moving China just further away from expectations that, you know, at least it would have a collegial, slightly balanced policy apparatus, leadership apparatus. We knew for a long time that this would be an exceptional turn in China's history, recent history. But because this was going to be an exceptional term, Xi Jinping had to cement an enormous amount of power before that. It had to kind of solidify a lot of policy directions before that, so that all of the stability and the continuity, just all of the concerns that could have arisen around the party congress were, you know, set aside very, very clearly. So that the avenues for doing what he just did, that that avenue was without any obstacle. The party congress, Agatha, of course, also comes at a very special time for China. The country has been all but close to foreigners uh, for two and a half years now. And I imagine this presents uh, somewhat of a problem for, for people like yourselves who on a daily basis observe China, analyze China. So can you talk a bit about how, how that affects your work? How can you How can you report on China and analyze China without being able to be in China? Well, uh, Nico, this is an incredibly important question to ask because this is one I've been struggling with as a researcher for the past couple of years. Um, as a person, as a China, uh, as a China expert and as someone who's passionate about China, I just miss being on the ground, to be honest. I just miss being, um, in the country and just speaking to people and feeling the vibe and just knowing what's happening. Uh, from a from a day to day kind of very concrete perspective, that's for sure. Um, and I miss this deeply. Uh, but from a researcher's point of view, this is extremely important as well, because there's a lot of sources we used to be able to rely on that we can't rely on anymore. There's a lot of field research that we used to do that uh, we can't do anymore. Um, and, you know, field research in my job is half of the, of the work, because uh, as much as you can get data and information, you need to be able to triangulate it. You need to be able to confirm um, some of your suspicions, some of your assumptions. So that's what it's used for. And, and we've, we've lacked that big time. Fortunately, there are some decent, absolutely imperfect, but decent alternatives, um, especially for economists like us. We're not anthropologists, we're not sociologists, we're economists. And so there's, there's a few ways that we can cope with this um, in a decent way, not perfect way. 
Um, first is we still have access to Chinese official data, and that's been, you know, a core material, a bulk of um, information for our analysis for years and years. And so we still have access to that. The series we're available to rely on are fewer over time, which is extremely concerning, of course, from from our point of view. Uh, so we can we can work off that, and this is a very very good basis. On top of this, we have access to alternative datasets and databases. Those have developed actually very quickly the past five years on the back of fewer um, and less reliable official data. There are a lot of databases that people are just putting together as a means um, to make up for the loss of uh, information, either in official data or just fieldwork. We speak to people, we speak to as many people as we can on the ground. Uh, we're on the phone all the time. We're speaking to businesses, we're speaking to companies, we're speaking to policymakers, we're speaking to um, representatives of uh, European institutions on the ground. We're, we're doing the best we can to replicate what we would have done anyway during our fieldworks in China, just being on the ground. And finally, it's just a matter of admitting what we don't know. And so whenever we formulate our analysis, whenever we, we write a note, we're just very frank and upright about... Uh, what what we're able to state very clearly and very kind of with with complete confidence and what uh, would have required a little bit more fieldwork. Uh, we just have to be frank about what we know and what we don't know. Immediately after the party congress ended, China also released its third quarter GDP numbers. It actually delayed the release of um, because of the congress. And again, somewhat predictably, uh, the story was that uh, the Chinese economy is still growing, but it's growing slower than it used to grow. And crucially, it's also growing slower than what the Chinese government had targeted. The overarching story and interpretation that I see from, from broadly from Western sources is such that China's growth over the last 10 years or so has always been unsustainable. It was investment driven. Um, you know, a lot of it was was money being pumped into real estate. And now basically, you know, sort of this unsustainable process has caught up with the economy. And, and you know, China's now looking at prolonged period of slower growth. And on one hand, this interpretation makes sense to me. On the other hand, I feel maybe we're making it a bit too easy by sort of projecting almost our own economic values onto the country. So would you agree with that? Is that what's happening? Is this, you know, just a temporary slump that's being brought on by the zero COVID policy and prolonged lockdowns? Or are we some seeing something more fundamental shift in the Chinese economy that's not going to change immediately again? This is this is a good question. And, and you're asking it to an economist that's trained in kind of Western economics, right? But economics, nevertheless, with a, a very, very strong conviction uh, and belief that there are laws of economics the same ways as there are laws of physics, um, and that China can't evade it just because it's got a different model, right? And we're, we're going to get back to that in a second, but very important to say, yes, I'm coming at it from a uh, from, from, from here in Europe, from a Western economics perspective. But I do very, very strongly believe that there are things that uh, economics just impose on you and China can just wing a little um, because it's a, it's a different model. A lot of people, as you say, focus on the effect of COVID restrictions as the driver of the slowdown at the moment. A lot of people will say that uh, the lockdowns we saw in the first half of the year are some of the main reasons for the fact that China's growth this year is lower than the party expected, the leaders expected, the country expected. And COVID has had, um, and the restrictions around COVID have had very detrimental effects, of course, on business sentiment, on investment, on consumer spending. 
Um, and there's no denying that there was a huge shock to the economy this year. But what you're describing and what, what is happening in the property sector is really where we think most of the slowdown is coming from and will come from in, in the coming years. The property market, just to give you a, a broad estimation, is about 25% of the Chinese economy and it's been imbalanced for a very long while. The reason why it's imbalanced is that there's too much produced, too much constructed compared to China's population and demographic trends. And so the the reckoning was going to happen for years and years. There was excessive investment in the sector and excessive investment in the sector was possible because China had a policy of just letting it happen. Over the past couple of years, the policy has changed. There's been a deleveraging push, very, very strong deleveraging push to de-risk the economy, to reduce the financial crisis potential in the economy pretty much. And the government has stuck to that. And what we're seeing today with uh, the property market in complete disarray is very much a, a result of that. There's a reason why the government is not stepping in. Once again, the market is imbalanced and it needs to it needs to rebalance. Uh, and the only way it's going to rebalance is by just clearing out all of the overinvestment uh, of, of the past few years. Uh, but because it's such an important part of the economy, it has a very deleterious, very negative and long-term effect on China's economy. And this is why, uh, this is a very long answer to your question. This is why we believe at Rodium Group, I believe personally that, of course, COVID had an effect this year, but China's growth is going to come down for a long term because the rebalancing in the economy away from the real estate market, away from the property market will take years uh, to clear up. And so we're bound for, yes, at least three years of lower growth. That's because, once again, 25% of China's output GDP is linked to real estate, but that's also because the other drivers of China's growth, especially consumption, but also business investments, are very much linked to the sector as well. 80, you know, close to 70 to 80% of Chinese household wealth is in real estate. And so if the real estate sector is not doing well, then consumers might have a very, very hard time spending more, changing their behavior to just become bigger spenders. Um, and so this is going to hang on to the economy, burden the economy for a while longer. And, you know, in the current context with the announcement of the party leadership that we saw last week, there's little to believe that private dynamic, innovative investment can really pick up the slack from the property sector and from consumption. And so if you put all of that together, it's really hard to be positive and, and optimistic about China's economy in the next few years. Um, I don't want to say that this is bad, actually. This is this is good. China has needed to rebalance for a long while. And so what we're seeing here is just a natural and necessary recalibration of the economic model. Uh, but it is going to be painful for the next few years. We're seeing China now easing some of its pandemic restrictions very slowly and subtly, but still. Um, and one thing that this means is that in-person high-level diplomacy can restart again after again a very long and unprecedented break. And, and one thing we know is that uh, there are planned visits to China from both uh, the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz and French President Emmanuel Macron. Crucially, not together. They're going separately. And they have both faced quite a bit of criticism for going on this trip, especially Schultz, because he's uh, he, he wants to bring an economic delegation. Now, if you had to advise any of these two politicians on their China trip, like what's a good way for the leader of a Western European democracy to go to China right now and have any sort of positive effect? It's a, it's a good question. It's one that I... <laughs> It's it's one of the reasons I'm not a chancellor, is that I'm having a hard time responding uh, to this question. Let me give you a few 
a few ideas. Diplomacy needs to happen in most contexts, right? Uh, it is extremely important, uh, especially with the second largest economy in the world, especially with a country as powerful as China today. The, the issue, I think, that is taken with shortest trip and, and Macron's trip, but especially shortest trip, is twofold. The first one is the is the huge focus on economic um, and, and business for shortest trip in a way that isn't balanced. Um, he's bringing CEOs with him. There might be signing of big contracts and deals in a context where there's an increasing promise fatigue. There's an increasing realization that China is just not opening up, if not closing down to foreign business, that it's more and more favoring its own domestic players, that it has a, a policy of self-sufficiency, etc., etc. So a context that's getting more and more difficult for European companies. And so to go there without kind of having that in mind and just to go there as if it were 2008 is looking a little bit weird for a lot of observers. The second thing is that I don't think observers in Germany and in Europe know and are confident that Schultz will be bringing with him strong talking points about issues of the days. Xi Jinping's relationship to Vladimir Putin, China's economy, economic imbalances, but especially lack of reciprocity, China's behavior in Europe. Uh, wolf warrior behavior, behaviors towards Lithuania, behavior towards Sweden, strong talking points on uh, Taiwan, for that matter, which is the looming crisis in the background as well. And so I think in the absence of a certainty that Schultz will be not just bringing an economic and business delegation, but also bringing on those very strong talking points, there's a, there's a concern and, uh, um, and slight discomfort in Europe at the moment. Now, if I were them, I would hope to have those talking points ready. I would also hope to have talking points available for some of the big international items that need to be discussed with the power of the size of China. I'm thinking here of, you know, food crisis that the Ukraine war could cause again or could cause even more so than it has in the past, just making sure that the, the consequences of the Ukrainian war don't hurt the world uh, more than they need to. Strong talking points on climate. Uh, China has had the luxury of having declining emissions in uh, the second quarter of the year because its economic performance was so bad. But as soon as the economic performance comes back again, if it does, and from from our perspective of the, of course we think it's not going to be it's not going to be great. But um, if if China bounces back, emissions are going to bounce back as well. And last year, China was polluting more than all of the OECD countries taken all together. So the main country, the most important country for climate purposes, is China. So I would try and come into China with a with a strong climate agenda and a series of climate talking points that really focus on uh, China's effort or required effort to decrease emissions um, for the sake of humanity. And then strong talking points on China's involvement and management of emerging market debt crisis, because those are still happening. There's still a lot that needs to happen in the way of renegotiating, especially African countries' debt. Um, and so in addition to purely European kind of economic concerns, I would make sure that those are on the agenda. We've talked about the difficulties of European diplomacy towards China, but of course, this is a two-way street. And it strikes me that Chinese diplomacy towards Europe also isn't super easy right now. And the, the case in point here is the slow disintegration of what used to be referred to as the 17 plus one group. Um, so the 17 referring to uh, 17 mostly Eastern European nations and the plus one China. And China kind of built this sort of informal dialogue format exactly 10 years ago in 2012. It was seen at the time as a very savvy move to kind of like divide and conquer 
Europe by sort of offering these Eastern European nations, some of which were also, you know, at this point, of course, disappointed with the EU and, and Western Europe, sort of an alternative with offering them development aid and sort of including them in this dialogue. Now, the format is, is all about disintegrating. Um, several members uh, have left. We've mentioned Lithuania, of course, which which got in a big spat uh, with China over Taiwan. Um, Estonia and Latvia have left. The Czech Republic has said all options are open. So this seems like a quite spectacular and, and, and possible so underreported failure of Chinese international diplomacy. They tried to do something here and it didn't work out at all. But how do you interpret the, the 17 plus one failure? And do you see a shift in China's approach towards its European diplomacy as a result of that? So the, the fourteen plus the now fourteen plus one example is a is an excellent example of of a Chinese diplomatic failure for sure. And um, I just want to take a step back and explain why it's been Central and Eastern European nation success. A lot of the appeal of seventeen plus one, sixteen plus one, fourteen plus one, whichever you want to call it, but sixteen plus one to start with. A lot of the appeal was because. Central and Eastern European, especially EU member states, realized and considered that they had no voice or very little voice in the EU-China relationship, EU-China dialogue, EU-China policy. And so part of the interest in joining the grouping was to signal to Brussels that those countries could have their own China relationship, they could have their own China agenda. Uh, and that Brussels needed to take that more into account. And from that point of view, uh, I think 16 plus 1 has been a huge win for Central and Eastern European countries who now have a seat at the table in EU-China discussions, EU-China relations. Germany is still you know, driving a lot of, of that engagement, but you're hearing Poland, you're hearing the Czech Republic, you're hearing a lot of those members having more of a say in those conversations. Um, so it's actually, it's been a huge win. And it was one of the reasons why to start with so many countries just rushed to uh, join the, the grouping. It was a huge failure from, from China's perspective. First, and foremost, and mainly because China was not able to concretize what he ha it had promised, right? It had promised huge financing, huge, inve huge investment for the region. Um, and at the end of the day, some of it found its way to Serbia, some of it found its way to Montenegro, but with huge sustainability issues, very little of which found its way into the European Union member states of Central and Eastern Europe, a little bit of it to Hungary, but actually very, very limited still, um, and other countries saw almost none of it. Um, just to give you an example, we track Chinese investment in the European Union on a, on a yearly basis, and the Central and Eastern European members of the European Union typically make a 15% of EU's GDP, uh, but they year after year receive less than 3% of China's investment. Um, so despite all of the politicization, all of the diplomacy around it, China wasn't able to steer its company to invest heavily in those countries. And so seeing little realization of economic game, uh, those countries had much less interest to keep the diplomatic game happening and the diplomatic display happening. It seems like this kind of like overall gloomy picture, you know, of a Chinese government increasingly driven by ideology, increasingly confrontational difficulties in, in, in diplomacy on, on both sides, of course, is also spreading to business, the, the role that the European businesses especially play in China. And we are seeing that uh, investments from European businesses in China, which has been a, a huge source of technology and capital for a long time, are declining. And the investments that are still taking place largely come from a handful of like large multinationals, which have been in the country for a long time. The president of the European Chamber of Commerce in China said that no 
No, not a single new European company has entered the Chinese market since the start of the pandemic. But I sort of understand this gloomy mood. It's still a huge market. There's 1.4 billion people who live there, many of them now belonging to the middle class. So I'm also not sure if it's necessarily a sound strategy for a European company to just kind of like give up on China and write that off and sort of turn towards uh, Southeast Asian uh, nations, important as they may be. But for many multinationals, China will still present an opportunity and will still be an integral part of their international strategy, despite all the hiccups. So where do you see this going? Do you think we've kind of like reached, seen the peak of European business engagement in China already? Will this bounce back at some point? Nico, you're putting a lot of feelings and um, sentiment into your question, saying multinationals shouldn't give, an, uh, give up on the Chinese market. There's huge opportunities there. And a lot of companies, European companies, have made that point for a long time. The matter of the fact is, though, when you look at the data that European companies are pulling away from the market. When we look at our database of European investment in China, what we see is that 10 years ago, uh, there were about 200, sometimes almost 250 transactions above 1 million, uh, FDI transactions above 1 million euro happening in China. Today, it's about half that. So de facto, uh, we're seeing European businesses pull away from uh, the Chinese market. And the reason for that is first and foremost, China's policies, problems with China's market access, barriers to true, complete uh, ability to, to leverage opportunities um, on the Chinese domestic economy. And so at the end of the day, if you ask me, should there be more EU investment in China? I think there should be 10 times more. EU investment in China uh, than there is at the moment. China is the second largest economy in the world. Uh, China is a huge opportunity. It is a third of global growth, contribution of global growth for most of the past decade. There should be enormously more European investment in China. Every year, there is only about 10 billion in European investment in China. There is about 200 billion European investment in the U.S., uh, and the economies are, of course, not the same size, but they're not another magnitude different, right? And so in a normal world where uh, the Chinese market and China's economy was truly open, there should be immensely more European investment. The problem is that's not possible. That's not made possible by Chinese policies at the moment. You add on top of that COVID policies, you add on top of that um, geopolitical risk and political risk and the politicization of policymaking in China, uh, and you get to what where we are today. So feelings or no feelings, sentiment or no sentiment, uh, the matter of the fact is European businesses are pulling away from China at the moment. Agatha Kratz, thank you very much for joining us here on State of Asia. Thank you so much. That was Agatha Kratz speaking with us from Paris. Agatha will be in Zurich this November 10 at the inaugural State of Asia Conference organized by Asia Society Switzerland. Asia is shaping the big issues of our time. The State of Asia Conference will give you an overview of current and future developments in Asia, bringing together a selection of our most trusted experts from around the globe, including, besides Agatha Kratz, Leni Robredo, until recently the Vice President of the Philippines, Tomohiko Taniguchi, who was a special advisor to Japan's longest-serving Prime Minister, the late Shinzo Abe, and C. Raja Mohan, one of India's leading foreign policy thinkers. For a complete list of speakers, several of whom have already featured on earlier episodes of this podcast, visit our website at asiasociety.org Switzerland and click on the State of Asia banner. This is also where you can request tickets to the conference and the State of Asia address, 
and find information on the many other activities of Asia Society Switzerland. To stay up to date, be sure to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. All links are in the show notes. If you like this show, please subscribe and consider leaving a rating or review. It really helps other people find the show. State of Asia is produced by Remco Tanis, who edits an entire episode in the time it takes me to record this short outro, and hosted by me, Nico Lochsinger. If you want to support our work, please become a member of Asia Society Switzerland. Information is also in the show notes. Till next time. <laughs>